0: Well, good evening. What a warm welcome we have received. And on behalf of Heritage Valley Bible Church in Fillmore, um, I want to say thank you for your prayers. Many of you have been praying for our church because, uh, as you know, we've been looking for a building. And so when I run into you, you always ask, hey, so what's the situation with the building? So I appreciate all of you praying. We were supposed to be out of our building. A year ago, well, let's see, it was June 2018, and so when June came around, they extended our stay in that building until December, and then when we were getting ready to pack up and move on, they extended it till February 12th, and now they just extended it again until May 1st. So... Someone's going to come in and basically turn that church into something else, and we don't want that to happen. And so I know some of you have been praying that that wouldn't happen. In fact, there's a guy named Wesley. Is he part of your church? Is Wesley here tonight? So I met Wesley when we hosted in last April at, at um, in Fillmore, and I met him downstairs, and we were chatting, and he said, "Oh, what are they going to do with the building? It's such a nice building. How old is it? And all the rest." And I was telling, telling him the scenario. Yeah, we have to be out by June. And he said, well, I'm going to pray that you guys keep this building. And I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> I mean, it's in escrow. They got a buyer. I mean, he's already come, and they've done all the measuring of all the rest. And and he said, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray that you guys can keep the building. So I wanted to publicly be humbled tonight And personally, thank Wesley for his prayers, because here it is almost a year later, and we are still in that building, so I don't know what God has planned, but we're still there. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be able to preach from this pulpit. I wasn't sure what the lighting situation was going to be like, because in Rick Anderson's church, since I preach from an iPad, there's lights right above, and there's this horrible glare, and so I also have printed notes that are non-reflective, just in case, which helps me in my anxiety because I've had these dreams. Have you ever had a dream where you get up to preach and you you can't find what you're looking for and you don't have a sermon and everyone's looking at you? I've had that dream a lot of times. And so not only do I have my iPad, but I have the hard copy notes. So not today, Satan. (laughs) Satan. Well, I would normally have you at this time turn to a book of the Bible, but I have a PowerPoint tonight. I'm going to do something I promised I would never do, and that is preach in someone else's church and bring a PowerPoint along with me. The reason is because the last time I did that, I talked with the AV guy, and he said, I looked through all the slides, and they look great, and I said, all right, I'm just going to trust you with that. And then I get up there and we start going through the slides and every single one of them was jumbled in some way. It was a total disaster. So I said, well, I'm never doing that again. But for whatever reason, I decided to put together a PowerPoint for you. I thought it'd be a little easier for you to follow my argument tonight. And so I'm trusting Brian back there. It's all on your shoulders, Brian. So don't do me wrong, okay? He's a good man. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, let us pray as we begin. Our Father, as we just sang, we want you to show us Christ. We are not gathered here, Lord, to hear any kind of guest speaker. We are gathered here, Lord, because we want you to show us your glory, And so I pray this evening, Lord, that I would not be in the way, that there would be no distractions in the minds of the hearers, but that you would show us Christ tonight, that as your word is opened up, as the scriptures are proclaimed, that you would grace us once again with your wonderful presence and reveal to us these mysteries that have been hidden through the ages, but have been revealed at this time that we could see and understand and know the God who made us. We commit this time to you, Lord. We ask that you would bless the preacher and the hearer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was reading through a brochure recently of a particular church, and there it was, right there in the brochure. A quote that I've seen a bunch of times before and it's a quote that makes me cringe every time I see it. I've heard it from well-meaning Christians who maybe don't know any better and I've heard it preached from the pulpit from a man who should have known better. Maybe it's a quote that you've heard also. It's made its way around in several forms but it goes something like this. My life is God's gift to me and what I do with it is my gift to God. My life is God's gift to me. What I do with it is my gift to God. We call that an aphorism. It's a principle that has uh, conveys some kind of general truth. It's a saying that communicates something like that and these kinds of things tend to give us the warm fuzzies. You know, we hear these things, and maybe the hairs on the back of our neck stand up, but it makes us feel all warm inside. And yet, when we hear such sayings, whether in a church bulletin or otherwise, we have to always ask the vital question Is it true? Is it true? In our day, with the advent of social media and all the rest, we very much live in a soundbite culture where we post things on Instagram and Facebook, and Christians say one thing to another, and they're short sayings, and they're meant to con- communicate some kind of truth. But we always want to know is this what the Bible teaches? God tells us to worship Him with our hearts, but also with our minds. And this includes thinking biblically when it comes to those warm, fuzzy, feel-good quotes. So what I would like to do for you this evening is improve upon this quote and bring it into line with what the Bible teaches. So I believe a more biblical and therefore better rendition might read like this. My life is God's gift to me, and what I do with it is God's gift to me. Now, in these evening sessions, we've been going through a series called The Benefits of Salvation, and I want to present to you one of those benefits this evening that is, the personal holiness of the believer. I was tempted to preach on adoption, which has been preached on twice already by mistake, I believe. And not only did both brothers preach on adoption, they even quoted from the same author. Talk about being united in the spirit. But this is what I want to bring to you tonight. I want to propose to you this evening that Jesus came to redeem us to God, not only for the sake of rescuing us from hell, not only for the sake of giving us heaven, but that we may be conformed to be like him. God, in reconciling the world to himself, had an end in mind, which is to make us holy. That we would live and talk and think and act like Jesus. Jesus came to redeem us that we would be holy. This was God's plan from the beginning. This was not an afterthought in the mind of God, nor was it some kind of added bonus Rather, it was the intention of God from eternity past to call and redeem a holy people. Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus with this great and profound truth. Ephesians 1.3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. This was the end that God had purposed for his saving work. And this is a process that he began the day you believed the gospel. That day he not only made you alive in Christ... But he began the long and oftentimes slow process of making you holy. This is one of the spiritual blessings in Christ from verse 3. Jesus redeems us and he justifies us. And the process that follows that point of justification is that we begin to more and more reflect his divine likeness. And that transformation from unholy to holy is a gift of God and is a benefit of salvation. So what is holiness? It's a word we use constantly, but do we really know how to define it? If I was to ask you, define holy for me, what would you say? Some might say set apart. Yes, it does mean that. Some might say pure, yes. Some might say unique, could be. Some might say perfect in some applications, certainly. But it's really harder than you would think. For example, there are holy angels. Now, they are holy in the sense that they are without sin, But then there are holy days in the Bible, meaning that they are special or unique days. They're not like the other days. And then there were holy instruments that were used in the tabernacle and the temple, meaning that they were set apart for divine use. And when Israel is called a holy nation, we know God is not giving us an assessment of their moral condition, So when God purposed to make us holy, what does he mean? To simplify matters for us, I just want us to think of holiness as being made like God. God is holy. He is holy in all of his attributes. Everything he does is holy. He has a holy anger. He has a holy justice. He has a holy compassion. Holiness permeates everything he is and everything he does. He is the epitome of holiness. And that holiness took on human flesh. And if you want to know what a perfectly holy human being looks like, we have the perfect example in Jesus. Jesus showed us what a perfect and holy human being looks like. And through the new birth, that same essence of holiness is planted within believers by the Holy Spirit. You and I possess the presence of God within us, which means we possess the holiness of God. And what God is doing for us in Christ is making us holy. He's making us like he is Now, because of the abundance of cults and false teachers in our day, let me qualify that statement. I do not mean that we will be like God in the way that Joseph Smith taught, that we will someday, faithful Mormons, I should say, will one day rule over their own universe. I do not mean God will make us like him, the way the word of faith teachers teach today, that we are all like little gods and we can command the material world and it will obey us as if we have all of this power that we can direct the universe. What I do mean is that God is making us like him in the sense that when we think and speak and act and live our lives, it is a reflection of the holy God who made us. This is the purpose of God in Christ for you. In fact, it is the only reason God keeps you on this earth after conversion. It's because he is doing a work within you with holiness as the goal. God is making you like Jesus so that as the years go by, you will look more and more like him. And boy, does this world need holy people. So how does he do this? I need to pull the truck over for a second and give you two theological terms that I think will be helpful as we move forward. Both are descriptive of aspects of our salvation. Those two terms are monergistic and synergistic. And you're thinking, oh, I didn't know there'd be big words. (laughs) Now, I'm doing this for a reason. Bear with me. Some of you probably know this based on this crowd. Monergistic is a combination of two Greek words, mono, which means one, and ergon, which means work. It means it's a singular work. So we believe and teach that salvation is monergistic, meaning it is a work that God accomplishes by himself. God is not cooperating with another agent to bring about salvation. I could give you a bunch of verses to prove this, but for the sake of time, I will give you one. Lance read through it already in Ephesians chapter 2. I will refresh your memory. Prior to verse 4, which I'm going to begin in, Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they were dead in their sins... They were children of wrath. They were deceived by the devil. And then he says in verse 4, "...but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, down to verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, this is the story of their conversion, and this is the story of your conversion. You were dead and God made you alive. You were not sick. You were not comatose. You were not going through a bad season of life and God reached down and gave you a helping hand. You were dead. God made you alive. Salvation is monergistic. So that's our first term, but Sanctification, which is the process of growing in holiness, is synergistic. Comes from two Greek words, soon, which means with, and ergon, which means work. It essentially means working together. So God brings you to life and causes you to be born again. That is a monergistic work. But from that moment on, it becomes a synergistic work, meaning that you are cooperating with God through this process of becoming holy. One text should suffice, Philippians two, twelve, and 13. Paul writes to the Philippian church, "'Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, "'so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence.'" Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God commands you as his child to work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for as if it's something to be earned, but he tells you to work it out. As if it were something you already possess. Which it is. This is the process of holiness. Get to work because God is at work. Now I tried to think of an illustration of how two things are cooperating together to work. And this is the best I came up with. I don't really like it. Maybe one of the preachers here can pull me aside afterward and give me a better illustration. But here goes. Okay, You know those treadmills not the newer ones, I say newer, they've been around for like 25 years, that you turn the switch on and the belt just starts moving. Okay, that's what I mean by the newer ones. The older ones, you had to get on there and there was a belt and you had to start walking on it and then the belt started moving and then you started running and then the belt really started moving. But if you were to jump off of that, it would gradually slow to a stop the modern ones the belt just keeps on going so I'm talking about the old one where you get on there and you have to get that belt moving but once you get that belt moving and the more that you're running on that belt the more that the belt continues that's kind of like the process of this synergistic thing I'm talking about You're working and God is working and through that process comes a conforming to the image of Christ. Now look on the screen what it says in verse 13. This is what God is doing. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. This means that the desire that's in you to do good, that's the will... And the effort you put forth to do good, that's the work, is the activity of God in you. So he is accomplishing his work while you obey his commands to do the work. Why do you ever will or desire to do good? Why do you have that desire? Why do you have the desire to pray, or to read your Bible, or to share the gospel with your neighbor? Why do you have the will to give to missions, or come to a Sunday evening service? It's because God is at work in you. I assume that's the case. Some men might be here because their wives made them come. So, just to summarize, and I have a graphic for you, justification is monergistic, which means it happened at a singular point in time, but from that point on until the time that you die is synergistic, meaning you are cooperating with God through this process of holiness. God gives us holy affections, and these affections are a work of God that keeps us doing the work of God. God's grace is not merely limited to the act of salvation, and now once you believe, the work is up to you. Rather, he puts his spirit within you and gives you the drive and the desire to live for him. If he were to take his spirit from you tomorrow, you would no longer have holy desires, But because he's done a saving work in you, you are a new creation and your heart's desire is to glorify God. Now, you don't always do that. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the desire is there. And so God saves you to make you holy, which is the greatest kindness imaginable that a holy God could possibly bestow upon someone. Think about it. If God is the greatest, most wonderful, beautiful, righteous, glorious, majestic being that ever was, ever would be, ever could be conceived of. Then it would be the greatest of all graces if he was to make you like him. It's like a king who has mercy on a peasant slave. For whatever reason, the king is going through his, his kingdom and he sees a peasant slave and he, his heart goes out to him and he decides to adopt him as his son. Now, that's an act of grace. But he doesn't just stop there. Adoption is not the end of the process, it's the beginning. What the king will do is conform that former slave to his new life so that he reflects the royal family that he belongs to. He doesn't allow him to continue in rags or to dig through the trash. He doesn't allow him to continue to be uncouth or offensive. No, he teaches him to live as a reflection of the king. And this is an act of grace as much as adoption is an act of grace. God's benefits don't stop by just giving you heaven. He makes you into a person whose home is heaven. He makes you into a person who belongs in heaven. Now I ask again, how does he do this? We saw that it's a synergistic work, meaning you're involved in the process. We saw that God's work is in you and gives you the will to pursue this divine goal. But how does this happen specifically? How does holiness happen? Now, I think many of us perceive this process of growing in holiness with the concept that God is building something. God is at work in us, and he's building. So you provide the raw materials that he has to work with, and he's creating holiness in us by adding. So he has you listen to this really killer sermon on a Sunday night. Um... He gives you this experience over here. He gives you this trial over here. He gives you this person to disciple you over here. And he's adding and he's adding and he's adding like a sculptor would put more clay onto a masterpiece. But that, I think, is wrong. Biblically speaking, I think that is the wrong picture. I don't think God is building you up. I think God is tearing you down. God is making you holy and it's a work of subtraction, not addition. You're not a construction zone, you're a demolition zone. Now, if you think of how people will remodel a home, they'll go in there and they'll do the demolition work and they'll knock down some walls and they'll put up some other walls and that's part of construction. God's work in you is strictly demolition. Let me explain. He's not demolishing you and putting something else in your place. It's a different kind of picture of a remodel because the completed and perfected house is already encased in the broken down and battered house, which is your flesh. So God's demo work is meant to reveal the completed and perfect house that is already there because of the new creation. His life in you increases as you decrease. You don't grow in holiness by getting more of God within you. You grow in holiness by becoming less of you. Your sanctification is one of demolition. God is tearing you down because you are the one who hinders the process. You are the greatest obstacle to your holiness. It's you. Now, wait a second, preacher. You just told us that I work alongside with God in the process of holiness. Now you're telling me I'm getting in the way of the process. Which is it? Well, it is true that you are part of the process toward holiness, but your part in the process is one of becoming less and less. Your part of the process, your synergistic part, is of dying to yourself. That is how you become more holy. It's by continually submitting yourself to the will of God so that the fallen part of you that remains, the fallen part of you which continues to resist God, called the flesh, is stopped. Think of it this way. When you were born again, God gave you a new heart, and he gave you his Holy Spirit. That means you have God on the inside, guiding you and leading you, and convicting you, and directing you. And the battle now comes with that remaining fallen part of you that suspends and interrupts and complicates and hinders the process of obedience. And it keeps the internal holiness from breaking forth and shining in all of its splendor. Have you not found that you are the greatest obstacle to your holiness? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep saying that? Why do I keep thinking that? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And so what God does, through your various experiences through your various trials, through your various temptations, is he's weakening the flesh so it no longer hinders the work. There's a story. I don't know if it's true or not. But when Michelangelo was creating his masterpiece, David, the Pope came by to visit and he asked him how he can take a block of marble and make it look so beautiful. And he says, it's simple. I just take away every piece that does not look like David. And in the same way, God is conforming you to the image of his son and he is taking away and chipping away everything in you that doesn't look like Jesus. Now, I have to make another qualifying statement here. I don't mean God is tearing you down in the sense of your personality or characteristics or whatever makes you you. I don't mean God is tearing you down as if He's evacuating the person that you are and getting rid of it, or as in Buddhism, you become, you reach, reach the state of nirvana, which is like being dropped into an ocean of divine glory and you cease to exist your individuality just disappears I don't mean that what I do mean in him tearing you down is that he is freeing you from the confines of the flesh so that you can be more and more like he is this is why there are so many texts in the Bible that call you to deny yourself and to die to yourself in fact, the entire Christian life is one of putting self to death. Let me just give you a handful of examples. Colossians three five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you really want to understand this concept, Romans chapter 6. The whole chapter is practically about this. I'll just give you two verses, 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. God's not adding in any of these texts. He's stripping down what's there. And so your job in this process is to die to yourself. Which means to die to that part of you that remains in opposition to the will of God. To die to anything within you that has affections that are contrary to the will of God. Because that is what hinders the process. When you were born again, you immediately became fit for heaven. Did you know that? That means you cannot become more righteous positionally than you were when you first believed. Because when... You first believed, you received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that cannot be improved upon. So your standing before God is one of a justified status. That means if you had died one second after you believed the gospel, you would have been in heaven. And if you are a new creation today, and we know that you are fit for heaven then the only thing hindering you from the full expression of walking in holiness is that thing called the flesh. And God wants you to be holy as he is holy. Now, I trust that you see glimpses of holiness in your life. Maybe you're driving on the freeway and someone cuts you off. And five years before that, you would have been screaming and shouting and giving him the number one, hey, you're the best symbol out the window, and cursing and all the rest. But instead, you gain control, you get composure, and you think, I'm going to pray for that person, that God would keep that person from Hurting himself or others. I'm going to pray that God does a work in that person's life so that he becomes more aware of what's around him and he's not so offensive as to cut right in front of someone. What do you call that? Holiness. Now, I understand everything we do is mingled with sin. I mean, it's not perfect holiness, but that's holiness. Or how about... Let's say you have a real rotten mother-in-law, and she nags you, and she is on you all the time. I don't know why I'm using this as an example. I have the best mother-in-law in in the world, and I'm not saying that because she's here tonight, but let's say you're not as fortunate, and your mother-in-law is a perfectionist, And she is on you all the time as she says mean and nasty things to you. And five years ago, you would have said, oh, yeah. And you would have given it all right back to her. But instead, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Bless those who curse you. And instead of reviling her in return, you bless her. What is that? Holiness. Holiness. Now, do you always act this way? No, you wish. But you act that way sometimes. And when you don't act that way, God corrects you. Hebrews 12 is all about this. God chastens you as a father does to a son. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12:10. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. Your holiness is a really big deal to God. Now, why is it such a big deal to God? Because holiness is freedom. Holiness is absolute freedom. And when God is doing this tearing down work, he's breaking your will that still has self enthroned, and he's freeing you from that self-worship to worship the one that you were made for. And that produces joy, peace, happiness, and contentment. It's what you were made for. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15 says... For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One of the reasons Jesus died in your place is that so you no longer live for yourself because living for yourself is bondage. Our world depicts holiness as something boring. That's because the devil's a liar and he's convinced people that being holy is equal to being miserable. Reminds me of the Far Side cartoon where the guy is sitting on a cloud, supposedly in heaven, and he's so bored he says, Wow, I wish I had a magazine. As much as I love Gary Larson, that is a farce. Holiness is anything but boring, it is perfect joy and perfect freedom. It is being like God. I like a quote from John Piper. He says, true freedom comes when what we want to do is exactly the same as what we ought to do. That is a free person who wants to do exactly what he ought to do. It's aligning you with the will of God. The religious man without the spirit of God knows what he ought to do but he hates it. The religious man knows what he ought to do, but he hates it. He doesn't love reading the scripture. He doesn't love going to church. He doesn't love praying. He doesn't love abstaining from the lusts of the flesh. But he may do it anyway for the sake of his religion, but he doesn't love those things. But God is in the process of making you love those things which he loves. That is the work that God is doing in you and the end result is freedom because holiness is freedom. No longer encumbered by the desires of the flesh that are against the will of God. That is why Jesus came. Jesus came to raise up a holy people. Holiness is not just some afterthought. It was God's plan from the beginning. Now, let us conclude where we began, your life is God's gift to you, and what you do with it is God's gift to you. What God is doing in you today, through all the ups and downs, through all the trials and tribulations, through all the good times and hard times, is he's making you like Jesus. This too is God's gift, and it is for your good and his glory. So, love it, embrace it, pursue it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how you must love us to direct our lives that we may share your holiness. Help us this week, Lord, as we go out into this world, as we interact with family, friends, coworkers, unbelievers, kind people, difficult people, that we may keep these things ever before us, that we may have a vision of the Lord Jesus in his holiness, that we may not fight so hard against the process of being conformed to his image. And it's in his name we pray, amen.